Hi, welcome to Reset Your Mindset by Life Stance Health. Myself, Dwight Thompson, and my co-host, Nicolette Lianza, will bring you conversations with leading Life Stance Health professionals who will help guide you on your journey to positive mental health and well-being. At Life Stance, we believe in the three pillars of mental health, mental flexibility, mindfulness, and resilience. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining uh, Reset Your Mindset by Life Stance Health. Nikki and I are really excited today. We're joined by Dr. Zachary Dietrich, um, a neuropsychologist based out of our Louisville office. Um, Zach, you know, Dr. Dietrich, you and I have known each other for, for a while, and I've been really impressed with kind of your unique scope of practice, to say the least. Um, so I just appreciate you joining, man. Thanks, Dwight. I appreciate being on. And, and Dr. Dietrich, I'm new to meeting you, um, and I'm definitely interested, as well as our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your specialties. So I'm a clinician at the Louisville office, primarily focusing on neuropsychological assessment of neurodegenerative diseases and some neurodevelopmental disorders, primarily at the later end uh, of the lifespan. Um, and the difference between neuropsychology and psychology is primarily neuropsychology is really concerned about how the brain and the central nervous system influence, you know, cognitions and behaviors. And when I say the brain, I really do mean like the brain as an organ. So we're a little more oriented to um, trying to find ways to assess different cognitive functions and what that might mean diagnostically. What got you into this? What got you interested in this field? (laughs) So it was kind of a perfect storm of two different factors, one in my educational life and one in my personal life. Um, So I started off in grad school as just, you know, I wasn't really sure what path I wanted to go down. Um, And I started off working at SiteBC as an intern, actually. And um, I bumped into uh, Dr. Tom Swales and we kind of talked for a little bit. And what's funny, I brought this up to him 10 years later, and he kind of forgot this even happened. So it always makes a guy feel good whenever something that was so monumental in your life <laughs> is forgotten oh, uh, by somebody else. But anyway, <laughs> um, so he said, uh, you know, hey, I've been working with you, you know, talking to you for a little while. Let me show you what I do. I think you would enjoy this more. And that was my first exposure to a neuropsychologist. And it just so happened in my personal life um, my grandmother had just recently started the initial uh, progression that was the Alzheimer's diagnosis. Mm. So it was this weird junction of where I was seeing in my personal life, the effects of this disease and just reading more and more and more. And then as I went through grad school, focused on my practicums, um, focusing electives that I could take um, on neuropathology, neuroanatomy, and all my practicums were centered around assessment. Same deal with with uh, internship and postdoc and stuff like that. So, so that's kind of well, how I feel so, here. Yeah. So, um, so you, you know, I think throughout this whole conversation, you're going to be talking about some certain verbiage and some certain terms. A lot of the information you're going to be presenting is going to be new to a lot of people um, and very informative. One thing that's not going to be new to a lot of people is everyone, a lot of people can relate to having a family member, having a friend with Alzheimer's. Sure. Um, so a lot of what you do, although like on surface level, it might seem like 
what kind of clinician is this guy? This guy is, has a crazy scope of practice. When you really start to break it down and look at what you work with, you are invaluable because you work with people that are so near and dear to so many people battling a disease that's so complex. Um, what is it? What is it like working with the population that you work with? So, you know, of course, everybody's first kind of knee-jerk reaction to that is we're working with people who a lot of times are terminal, you know, and, and that reality cannot be, cannot be dismissed. And the clinician is always wise to keep that in mind. You're dealing with a real human being. You're dealing with a real family. Um, so there's lots of days where you have to check yourself to make sure you're given the appropriate amount of attention to this person that this situation warrants. Cause it is a very serious situation. Um, and those times where you tell somebody that, yes, this is Alzheimer's or one of those big, scary words, you know, then you have to have real conversations with the family about what to expect and yeah. what is the best course of action for their family. Give them any recommendations that you can as far as just to ease the process, not just on the loved one, but on the family member. Because a lot of times the person with Alzheimer's doesn't know they have Alzheimer's. Right. Yeah. The family is the one that's really um, really suffering here. Um, and then on, on the flip side of the coin, there are times where somebody can have certain types of strokes or can have silent strokes, TIAs, as we call them. And those things to the layman may look like Alzheimer's. And, um, one of the greatest joys in my job that I get is whenever I get to look at somebody and say, this is probably vascular in nature and it's probably not a neurodegenerative disease. Yeah. Take care of your cardiovascular health. And there's a good chance that it might not get worse, you know? Wow. And, yeah. you know, you might have three or four bad days in a row where you got to have some real heavy conversations. And then you see the look in that one person's eye when you tell them that, that just kind of makes it all kind of worth sure. it, you know? Because for sure. You definitely go through days where you wonder, what am I really doing here? And then all of a sudden, you have something like that. So it makes it worth it. Or, yep. or a family member calls you back and says, Hey, we tried this. And it, and it worked well. That's when you get that reminder. Absolutely. Yeah, you do special work, man. Dr. Dietrich, can you walk us through like what the testing looks like and <clears throat> the procedures to that? Sure. So the 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 first the first part of the evaluation always starts with a clinical interview, a consultation, if you will, just to get a better idea of what has been going on, the onset of the symptoms. Um, and that gives me a chance to talk to the patient to see if they have any understanding of their own symptoms. If they have understandings of their, of their own symptoms, oftentimes that's actually a good sign. Um, if they don't have understanding of the symptoms, then that tells me a lot about how the assessment process is going to go. And I get a feel for, is this somebody who will sit with me for three hours and go through all these cognitive tests and not get frustrated uh, to the point where it's not going to you know, be a waste of our time and all this and that. Um, so then the follow-up evaluations, the actual assessment, the meat and potatoes, um, we block off about four hours or so for that. And we do a series of, of tests looking at different cognitive domains, short-term memory, auditory memory, structured memory, visual memory, different visual constructional skills, you know, uh, how well can they pay attention and to what types of things can they pay attention to stuff like that so that we get a better understanding of, for lack of a better term, what part of the brain is, is firing off well and what might not be firing off so well. 
Um, and then after the evaluation behind the scenes, then we're going through medical records. We're trying to find, is there any medical explanation? Is there anything in their lab work that might explain this? You know, luckily enough, a lot of times we're, we get uh, neuroimaging so we can look at that to see if there's any correlates here um, to help us with the diagnosis process. Once the patient leaves, the real work happens after they leave. And now we're just interpreting data. Got it. So, Dr. Dietrich, let me ask you this. So, correct me if I'm wrong. When you really think, like, what you specialize in, you specialize in neurodegenerative disorders, correct? Sure. Yes. Disease. Yes. Okay. What, what is that? So, a neurodegenerative disease or dementia is just an umbrella term for a range of conditions that primarily affect neurons in the human brain. All right? And neuro, neurodegenerative disease is an incurable, debilitating condition where you have a progressive degeneration. All right. And that can cause problems in motor movement, mental functioning. And my job is to try to the best of our ability to look at what might be the actual nature of this disease so that we can give our best practices recommendations and or things to avoid with certain diseases. Like there's certain medications you want to avoid if this person has Lewy body's disease or something like that. Um, so that's what a neurodegenerative disease is just an umbrella term for a slew of different type of dementias. Dietrich, what would be some signs or symptoms that families should be looking for if they do have some concerns with some family members? So a lot of people, especially when we're talking about the ones everybody knows, like Alzheimer's and frontal temporal dementia and stuff like that, everybody knows of those short-term memory deficits or maybe some language deficits and stuff like that. But what a lot of people don't know is that actually a lot of times I hear and the literature supports this that they will say you know my mom was just always a pretty happy person always pretty flexible always pretty you know adaptable to what was going on and then all of a sudden she just got withdrawn all of a sudden she just didn't really like to do new things didn't want to do anything and if you see somebody that is has an entire life of being well-adapted, well-functioning, and then all of a sudden around age 70 or somewhere in that ballpark, now all of a sudden they're getting way more withdrawn. They don't want to do the things, you know, they like to do. They don't want to go to church on Sunday anymore, and they have a lifetime of that, or they don't want to go to Thanksgiving. Um, I'm not trying to say we should knee-jerk to assume the worst on that, but oftentimes those little things can be misdiagnosed as just – depression or something like that when in reality it's not true mm-hmm. depression it's it's apathy that's going along with the neurodegeneration no oh, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. point I, I think that might be the first conclusion that a lot of family members might be jumping to if they're seeing a change in personality or functioning with a family member of maybe they're just depressed or whatever <laughs> and really might be missing there's a deeper issue going on that's really interesting right. for sure Absolutely. And so, I mean, so a lot of the, so what you're doing, it's so collaborative because you have family members involved. You're having multiple people involved in a discussion centered around one individual. Um, one individual who, you know, I, I, a lot of the folks you work with are a little bit more on the elder, they're elderly, they're um, battling something that they've, it's so scary. You know, I, I like my grandfather, he, he had Alzheimer's. And I could see, I could see he was scared. It's, it's, you don't really understand what's going on, but you know that something is wrong. Right. And there's all sorts of defense mechanisms that come with that. What have you, what is it like 
working with that demographic and that population? And what are you trying to implement and what you offer that to, to try to manage it and help people navigate potentially the scariest time of sure, their life? Sure. When it comes to I, I, me personally, I kind of look at it in two different ways. I have a patient, which is this individual that we've done the evaluation with. And almost like that is my patient, but the family is my client. You see what mm. I'm saying? The family mm, is who is going to get the bulk of the behavioral intervention. They're going to get the bulk of the conversations, you know? Right. And the one thing that I always try to stress is the absolute worst thing you can do is argue with them, say things to them that confuse them, say things to them that mm. make them angry. Like, come on, grandma, you remember me, don't you? You know, mm. stuff like that. And it's tough for people to comprehend and it's tough for people to make this switch that one day I might not be able to call my mom, mom, because that might confuse her. So I might have to start calling her Judy. If I want to sit down and have a conversation with this woman and I want her to enjoy her best quality of life as possible. And I still want to have some good memories that can be made with this woman. Then I have to make changes myself. I can't treat this the way it used to be. And that is, that is, that's very hard for people. Uh, I had a patient one time who the, I mean, this, this is just a brilliant example. The patient thought that there were tigers outside the window. And this was well before Tiger King and everything, all that, you know, but the, (laughs) (laughs) the patient patient thought there was tigers outside And, and in a moment of brilliance, the wife didn't say well, there's no tigers in this area. There's not this. All she said was, it's a little early in the year for tigers, isn't it? <laughs> and then the, the patient yeah, just said, so just... it might be. You know, and then they moved on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And not to brag on, on, not to brag on my, on my father, but my dad had a stroke of brilliance one time. My grandmother went down into the basement and my grandfather just could not get her to come up out of the basement. And, you know, we're, we're a farm family. So the most important thing in a farm family you can do is keep the, keep everybody fed. Right. And my gotcha, grandfather yeah. tried for hours to get her to come upstairs and, um, just couldn't do it. He called my dad and my dad walked over and said, I'll get her out of the basement. And then just said, Hey mom, I'm home. I'm hungry. Right that away. Works. Right that, away. That brought yeah. her up. Right wow. away. Okay. So Great. the, the education process is really focused around the environment, focusing on their physical safety first and foremost, and then the emotional health of the home. Yeah. Because I would believe it's like a law, like uh, going the family going through grief of losing their family member and who they used to be and and their own memories of who they used to be i would think that's a whole process for the family of grieving absolutely that law right because you're losing it seems like you're losing someone that's still here with you and i'm speaking from personal experience like yeah i know that that's the feeling and i'm sure that's a feeling that so many people have felt what so just generally it's kind of putting you on the spot but what kind of tips would you give family members supporting people that are struggling with a neurodegenerative disorder? The big thing is the old rules of how our life used to be are out the window. Point blank, point blank. And you have to choose your battles and you have to choose them wisely. 
Nobody, okay. nobody has ever died from long fingernails. Right. Good point. Good and point. some people mm-hmm. might not like to see their loved one with disheveled fingernails. But the mm-hmm. process of clipping their fingernails might not be a good time to do it for Lord knows how many mm-hmm. weeks. You no, know what I'm no. saying? And point. if they want to wear a sweater that makes no sense to a family dinner, whatever, who cares? Is it worth the fight? Yeah. Right. You have to focus on, like I said, their physical safety. And, you know, you can still enjoy your time you have left with these people if you Mm -hmm. choose your Mm -hmm. battles. If you try to pull them and, you know, fix their hair, you know, that can, fixing a hair can be just a monumental task, rife with strife. And what are you getting out of it? What are you getting out of it? Dr. Dietrich, a lot of um, a lot of the conversations you and I have had, especially this year, given everything that is going on with our pandemic, um, we have we've had some discussions about COVID and some of the effects you've seen from a neuro perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the one thing I cannot stress this enough is that I don't have, and I'm not sure if anybody has a good understanding of Absolutely. how some of the impact COVID can have from a neuroanatomical perspective. Um, okay. Myself and a slew of people on listservs and Facebook groups um, and text threads have been sending articles back and forth um, because some of the things that myself and some of my colleagues are seeing um, are, are just, we didn't expect to see this in March and right. A lot of people's first go-to is that, well, you know, it's an upper respiratory infection, it's decreasing oxygen, so there might be, you know, some stroke-like activity or, or some lack of oxygen going to the brain and somehow, um, but with the patients that have been referred to me, the handful of them, you don't see this on a CT scan. You're not seeing any um, stroke-like activity, and primarily what we are seeing is short-term memory deficits. Um, some people are reporting informally in these groups that they are seeing some executive functioning deficits related to language. Um, and the one that I've seen, a few other people have seen is processing speed, how fast the brain is moving. And anytime, Mm. anytime we talk about processing speed, of course, a lot of us first go to is, well, this was something related to, you know, lack of oxygen for some period of time, um, and stroke like activity. But it just, again, it is a strange thing. It, it, it's not making a lot of sense to myself. And right. it doesn't make a lot of sense to the, the neural community at large. Yeah. Um, but one thing I will say, though, I have had a follow-up with one patient who I did. I tested um, around May, I believe. And I did talk to him three months later and just through conversation, um, the good news is it does seem like he was getting some of those faculties back, which again, that's good, which again, he's not a hundred percent. And again, that, to get him back makes no sense either. Um, but there is the, the, the COVID 
pandemic is impacting more than just people's lungs, cardiovascular functioning, all the stuff that, that we hear about. That's so important to, yeah. to point out because I think that's what a lot of the assumption is, is that it's, it's hitting those areas and not neurologically. And here you are saying there are some neurological effects of COVID. So yeah. it's really important to put that out there to educate Absolutely. people on that. And everybody's heard of the big one, you know, the loss of, loss of smell and taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go past the blood-brain barrier and get into uh, those neuroanatomical correlates of behavior, that's something I didn't expect for sure. Yeah. That's – I don't think there's – I think it's something no one expected, but that is super insightful. I appreciate it. So, Dr. Dietrich, I kind of want to shift it a little bit more to um, a, a professional standpoint in, in a lot of the things that you supplement for um, different neurology departments in your respective area. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been like working with um, those departments? Sure. Oh, yeah. So the I say this to people all the time. The only reason why I still have a job is because neuroimaging, you know, MRIs, uh, CT, fMRI um, are not as specific as we want them to be yet. So a lot mm-hmm. of times family members will go to like my, my biggest referral source is Norton neurology and a family will go to their memory care clinic and start to have these mild complaints and they'll send them to neuroimaging and the CT scan comes back absolutely fine because the disease just has not progressed enough. You know, uh, those amyloid mm-hmm. plaques, and those neurofibrillary tangles haven't done a strong yeah. enough job on the hippocampus yet to show hippocampal yeah. um, atrophy. So they refer to me to try to supplement to get an idea of where their cognitive functioning is at. Um, this has been a heavy Alzheimer's conversation, so we'll stick with that. The first cardinal feature of Alzheimer's is rapid forgetting. Yeah. We see that through formal structured testing more so than you will see that in neuroimaging, obviously. And the tricky part mm-hmm. with trying to diagnose something like Alzheimer's through a conversation alone is that the frontal lobes, especially in the early, in the early stages, are fine. This person is intelligent. This person is bright. This person can put things together. And they're not doing it on purpose, mm-hmm. but you, you mm-hmm. might ask them a question and they might have a really good response that kind of makes sense and can kind of explain uh, their memory deficit in a way that's not something that's neurodegenerative, you know, uh, like, like you mm-hmm. might ask them a question, you know, what month is it? And that person might just happen to look outside and see that this tree starting to turn brown and might just throw out their October. Right. They don't remember it's okay. October. Sure. It is just. They're more like guessing. It is the front, the, the parts of the brain that are intact are operating so fast that they don't even mm. realize they have just done that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, interesting. so, okay. and I can't stress that enough. They're not lying and they're not trying to necessarily overcompensate. It is just mm. almost seemingly like a natural course of what is going on. Right. Um, so that's how my job, that's how, how, how our science supplements neurology, looking yeah. at those behavioral quantitative and sometimes qualitative methods of assessment to give maybe that missing piece or at least another piece of evidence to the overall diagnosis. Very rarely um, can we diagnose confidently based on just one data point. It takes a lot of data points 
sure. um, oftentimes across sure. a person's lifespan and, you know, neuropsych evaluation, lab work, stuff right. of that nature to try to get a better explanation. Got it. Gotcha. Dr. Dietrich, my gosh, you definitely provide of, provided us with lots of information about this. And I, I think some of my own takeaways that I'm going to be more mindful of is just, you know, the effects that it does have on the families of their loved ones. And you mentioning like, you know, the old rules are out, you know, yeah, of who you thought they were before, you know, you have to throw those out and seeing who they are now and, you know, picking your battles with them. If their fingernails are long or their hair isn't comb, you know, is it really worth wrestling with them to clip the nails or comb their hair? You know, it's, it needs to be moving away from that. I think that's so key right there. Wait, well, what about one yourself? of them for sure was the picking your battles. I, uh, that's so, that's so much easier said than done. Um, but I, 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 you know, I guess I've never actually kind of like contextualized it to really have it kind of in my forethought. But again, it's like I said at the beginning, so many, a lot of what you were talking about is going to be new to a lot of people, but what's not new is knowing mm-hmm. people with these disorders um, and these diseases. So, um, and, and, and absolutely. And part of picking your battles is putting yourself heavy into check to right. see why am I, am I trying to get her to remember for her benefit Sure. Or am I trying to get her to remember mm-hmm. for point. my benefit? Yeah. A I'm unco- Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and you can't be mad that's at the, pay- mad the family member for trying to do that. But that's just a realization that they all mm-hmm. have to come to. You're that's doing this for point. you. You're not doing this for your loved one. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very poignant. Well, Dr. Dietrich, I, we really appreciate you joining. Um, I, I, I can't speak highly enough for what you do. And it's been, it's been great working with you. Thanks, sir. Um, so I appreciate it. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. 